statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine. And like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, some of us were lucky enough to have known our grandparents or even great-grandparents. We have stories about their lives, how they made their livings, um, their tools, their treasures, um, what they thought about their world and their community. Different from history books, their, their stories help us understand the everyday lives of the people. And today, we're going to talk about the everyday lives of the people as they kind of are, are uh, captured um, and um, uh, archived by the Maine Folk Life Center. And I'm really happy to um, welcome Paulina McDougall, who is the director of the Maine Folk Life Center. Welcome to you, Paulina. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Great. And uh, uh, Katrina Wynn, who is the archives manager, relatively new new to uh, the Folk Life Center. Welcome to you, Katrina. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. Well, first of all, um, Paulino, tell us a little bit about the origins of the uh, Folk Life Center, and then we'll find out how you got involved. Sure. Well, the the Folk Life Center uh, started really as a a pile of papers in a shoebox under Professor Sandy Ives' desk uh, many years ago. Um, Sandy came to the University of Maine as an English professor in 1957. And uh, he founded the Northeast Folklore Society in 1959, which was uh, uh, his idea was to have a a membership of people who are interested in folklore and uh, have a small donation from each one, a membership fee that he could then use to publish a little uh, journal called Northeast Folklore. And so that was the Northeast Folklore Society. Well, as I said, he had began to collect uh, materials uh, from his students and also his own research materials, and uh, they began to grow. Uh, he taught through extension, I believe, uh, all around the state folklore classes, and so his students went out and collected folklore everywhere. And so he also founded the Northeast Archives of Folklore and Oral History in the late 50s, early 60s. So um, then uh, I think somewhere around 1960, he had earned his uh, folklore degree at Indiana. And the uh, Dick Emmerich, who was starting the anthropology department at the University of Maine, invited Sandy to come to anthropology because Sandy was interested in not just the folklore um, as literature, but how it the context of it in the community and um, uh, the people who were creating it. And so it was more anthropological uh, approach than literature approach. Mm. So he went to anthropology and and then somewhere around in 1973, he began doing oral history. And this was kind of a new thing to go out and actually record people before that people had taken notes or whatever. I mean, there were people doing this, but um, it became... Uh, a method that has grown enormously uh, all around the country. And he was really a pioneer in, in oral history and developed some publications and videos on oral history and so on. So the Northeast Ar- Archives of Folklore and Oral History collected both folklore materials and oral history materials. And then as uh, we moved into the 1980s, there was more public programming added to the 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 duties that uh, Sandy did. So he would he would bring this out and do things uh, 
videos, uh, exhibits, uh, programs at festivals, that sort of thing. So by by adding the public programming, then it became kind of a three-tiered organization. And so around 1992, um, he and his associate director at that time developed a proposal to the university to establish the Maine Folklife Center, which brought in the Folklore Society, the journal the archives and the public programming, put them all together in one organization. And so that's how the Folklife Center started. Great. That's a great story. And and how did you get involved? What was your what was your path? Well I hung around for a while. Um, I was doing other things but uh, I sort of volunteered to uh, help Sandy with the journal, do the editing of the journal uh, back in the eighties. And uh, I kind of, I guess, got the bug. And mm. <laughs> uh, eventually uh, an opportunity arose for him to give me a real job. So that's uh, how I became first a folklife specialist doing re- research primarily and then uh, an associate director, uh, his right-hand person, mm. for a number of years and then later uh, became the director. And and what, was your interest always there? Did you always have an interest in what was happening in kind of in communities at, in the folk? Well, my uh, be, before I came to the Folklife Center, I worked with the uh, Penobscot Indians for a number of years on a dictionary. And uh, yes, very much working with communities was, was part of what I wanted to do. Very much interested in culture and language in particular. And, of course, folklore does relate very much to languages and dialects mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So there was always that part of it. Um, and once I got into the Folklife Center, uh, I got involved in other communities as well and did more community outreach mm-hmm. things. And Katrina Wynn, tell us a little bit about your path into this work. Huh. Well, I went to uh, my undergrad in D.C., and I interned at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, and that's when, as Paulina said, I caught the bug, mm. um, and I decided to go and get a graduate degree in folk studies. And I went to uh, Western Kentucky University, uh, which is in central South Kentucky, and uh, one of the things we actually watched in my how to you know, become a folklorist was uh, Sandy Ives' video on how to do oral history. Um, and that was my very first semester, and that stuck with me. Um, after I graduated, I went went to, within a month of graduating actually, this retreat that was a New England and uh, Mid-Atlantic folklore retreat, and Paulina was there, and uh, someone mentioned that she had a job opening, (laughs) so (laughs) I was really excited. I'm from Vermont, so it was really nice to get back to New England and get back to the folklore of New England. Mm. So do you remember um, um, hearing stories as as a young person from older people? Uh, well, I have always loved my family stories and uh, family folklore, and I grew up uh, reading books from uh, folk tales around the world. That was my mm. favorite uh, to learn about. So mm. it's definitely something I've been interested in my whole life. So uh, this notion of, of um, folk tales moving to kind of um, oral histories, tell us a little bit about that, Paulina, um, in terms of, of how we um, began to make this much more open-ended, more open to the people. Mm-hmm. Well, folklore, broadly defined, really is all about uh, tradition and things that are passed on from generation to generation. Now, that could be something like a story or a legend or, a, a you know, a hero tale or anything like that. But it also might be a skill or a recipe or how you make a boat or, you know, mm-hmm. any sorts of things like that. Local knowledge, very much part of uh, of it. And <clears throat> that comes out of ethnic groups, occupational groups, family groups. Wherever people have something in common and they have this some knowledge that's specific to that group, that's really what folklore is. Mm. I can remember Sandy. I was a student um, at the university, and and uh, he was all uh, you know doing his work, but he was also interested in bringing music to the campus. And so I remember um, the concerts, the Boys of the Lock and mm-hmm. Gordon Bach, and mm-hmm. and folks that he knew personally, and would bring them to the campus and share them with the rest of the world. Yes, yeah, Sandy had a, a you know he was a musician himself, and right. he was very connected to folk music, many folk music friends, and he collected quite a bit of folk music. Um, as part of his interest in uh, in the folklore of the Lumberwoods, for example. Um, and I have one of my prized possessions is his LP, you know, the oh, yeah. early collection <laughs> of his, his going out and collecting those songs and then sharing them back with people. Well, we have, um, I think we counted something like 3,600 songs in the Folklife Center collection. And of that, almost 700 were collected by Sandy. And another 
almost 400 by Jeff McKean, Smokey McKean, who you probably know is mm. also a musician who's done a lot of work in the state. But that's really quite a phenomenal number of, mm. of songs that we have. And how did Sandy collect those, or, or Smokey? How, how did they... Well, they went they out and, uh, you know, talked to people and said, you know, anybody that does songs and, and uh, you know, someone would say, oh, you should go talk to so-and-so and... That's kind of how it works. And he brought his tape recorder. And he brought his recorder. Yeah, one of my favorite stories that uh, Sandy tells in his book, Drive Del Caraway, when he was working in Prince Edward Island, he used to go to people's homes where they didn't have electricity. So he had to, you know, back then a big, great big tape recorder, and he had a Volkswagen. So what he did was hook up the um, tape recorder to the battery in the car and have a little sound studio in his Volkswagen. But then, of course, he'd run the battery down. So he had to park on a hill so he could get the car started after the interview. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> That's great. And I can see him. I just yeah. I can see him. Well, perhaps Where later... there's a will, there's a way. You right. Know. <laughs> perhaps later we'll have some calls from others who do Sandy. Well, I think you brought some material with you, and I don't know um, whether we can hear the, uh, the uh, good old state of Maine. That would be the first one you'd like to share. And yeah. Give us a little um, introduction to that. Well, this is a song that was collected by Sandy from a singer named James Brown. It's a song that was written by Larry Gorman, who mm. wrote, uh, Sandy did a whole book on him. Uh, he wrote a lot of satirical songs. Some of them, sometimes they were very mean. <laughs> then, And uh, he had quite a reputation for that. Well, this particular song is about working in a lumber camp in New Hampshire. And he's comparing the work in New Hampshire with what it would be like in the good old state of Maine. And, of course, there's a lot of exaggeration and so on, but it's... Uh, uh, he uh, wrote it about this one particular guy, Henry, and uh, it's the legend behind the song says that he was actually forced to sing the song for Mr. Henry, um, who apparently liked it quite a lot, even though it was uh, directed against him, and uh, he even endorsed it as wholly truthful. <laughs> so let's let's go to that. Uh, let's go to that now. Come, Bushman, I'll give in a call until I will relate. For my experience in the lumbering woods was in the granite state. It's snow-clad hills and winding rills, it's mountains, rocks, and plains. You would find it very different from the good old state of Maine. The Indianers and foreigners, they flock in by the score. The diversity of languages would equal Babel's tower. Italians, Russians, Poles and Finns, the Dutchman and the Dane. You ought never hear such groans as those in the good old state of Maine. The difference in the wages, boys, is scarcely worth a dime. For it's every day you cannot work, you're forced to lose your time. For to pay your passage to and fro, you'll find but little gain. You'll do as well to stay at home in the good old state of Maine. For it's in the Sealand Valley you'll find seven feet of snow. And work from the theometer is 35 below. They average their three storms a week of sleet or snow or rain. You will seldom find such weather in the good old state of Maine. Our boss, he will direct you with a loud commanding voice, saying you know the regulations, boys, therefore you have your choice. Of course, he did not make those rules of him, we can't complain, but I never heard such rules as those in the good old state of Maine. As every night with pen and ink they figure up the cause. The crew was held responsible for all things broker laws. An axe, a handle, or a spade, a cantog, or a chain. A man is never charged for tools in the good old state of Maine. <coughs> 
They think your thing so very fine, it's hard to save a stand. For it's every month they do take stock of all things round the can. Toe pots, tea kittles, knives and forks, the draw shave and the plane are those that take a small account in the good old state of Maine. The rules and regulations, as I mentioned here before, in typewriting and in copies posted up on every door. For to lose your time and pay your board and work in snow and rain, they would call us fools to stand such rules in the good old state of Maine. Now, if you do not like the style, you can go down the line. But if you leave them in the lurch, they'll figure with you fine. Cut down your wages and they'll charge your carter on the train. I never heard of such a thing in the good old state of Maine. What is of the grub, I'll give a rub of which he well deserved. Our cook become so lazy, he allowed the men to starve. T'was bread and beans, and beans and bread, and bread and beans again. For grub we sometimes had it change in the good old state of Maine. Here is a do to camp and crew to Henry and son. Their names are great throughout the state, they're some of the sons of guns. I wish them all prosperity until I return again, but I'm in my ways and spend my days in the good old state of Maine. Great. That was wonderful. I just want to remind our listeners that they're, they're uh, tuned to Talk of the Towns. We don't often have music on Talk of the Towns, so it's, it's great. And that was um, The Good Old State of Maine, a song uh, collected by um, Sandy Ives. And any, any more you'd like to tell us about that, Paulina? <clears throat> well, if you, uh, you notice some of, the, uh, some of the things he says about the weather, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of snow and ice and so on, but never in the state of Maine. It does make you chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the exam. This is the equivalent um, in the 1800s, probably, um, of YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because people, you know, they had stories to tell, right. um, and they passed them on um, uh, through singing the song, and somebody else would learn that. Song. Right. Uh, just a little about Larry. He actually was originally from PEI, but he settled in Brewer, Maine, and worked at the Eastern Fine Paper Company mm. for many years. So uh, he was in um, a number of different lumber camps in Maine and would have experienced a very similar conditions there as he did in New Hampshire. Sure, sure. He still would uh, write a song like that. <laughs> Our guests this morning on Talk of the Towns are Paulina McDougall, who is the director of the Maine Folk Life Center, and Katrina Wynn, who is the archives manager. Uh, Katrina, um, as we talk about YouTube or mention YouTube, um, that's part of your job is to, to collect, make sure that these these materials are archived in a way and, and preserved in a way that future generations can listen to them. Yeah, um, I'm in charge of the digitization project uh, with the Library of Congress. We're collaborating with them. Um, so uh, eventually we'll get to the uh, how to present our digitized versions, but right now we're actually working on the physically digitizing them. Right. Um, we do have um, some stuff of up on Digital Commons right now. Um, the Fogler Library has this wonderful new uh, medium for sharing exhibits. And we put up uh, the song you just heard and a number of others. It's our song and story sampler, which is already on our website. But uh, Digital Commons has a really nice format that's really user-friendly. You can search like normal, um, but you can also browse by title, by collector, by artist, um, and by location. And so we found that it's a really nice and uh, pretty to look at uh, way of sharing our collections. Mm -hmm. So we hope you guys check that out. Um, but yes, uh, in general, we are digitizing our whole collection, which is uh, a big project. Uh, we have, you know, over 10,000 photographs, uh, over uh, nearly 4,000 sessions total. That's uh, over 1,000 slides, nearly 3,000 cassettes, numerous CDs, reel-to-reel -reel tapes, and, you know, so many transcripts and paper documents that we are digitizing. So turning those into PDFs or TIFF files or um, WAV files, depending on what format it is. Um, 
trying to figure out how um, we're going to work with access control. So we have these things digitized, but uh, what do we do with that? How do we share that? So, for example, if you go on the Digital Commons website, you'll find that I have watermarked the photographs and the uh, um PDFs of the transcripts. Uh, so that's just one of the things we're working through how to do when we're working with digital documents. Mm, because as, as we were listening to um, um, the good old state of Maine, you pulled up the, um, the, the, the script, basically. So um, people who might have a hard time understanding the words can y- use the, the, uh, the transcript, if you will, um, to kind of get that full picture. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, there's uh, one story that I looked at just to give you an idea. Um, Tom Gardner and two stories. And if you go on um, the Digital Commons and search Tom Gardner, that'll come up. And you'll find on that information about um, Tom Gardner. You'll find information about main guides because he's a main guide. Um, you'll find information about the content of the story. So it talks about um, rye flour. So a little bit about that, but also about the genre of story, which is about uh, being a good shooter, that type, that genre, um, as well well as the transcript for it, the audio file, and photographs. And all of that is also downloadable as well as streamed. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that uh, you can expect on the website. (laughs) That's great. And, and, And how do you suspect people are beginning to make use of these in a way that they might not have been able to do because, you know, they would have to go to South Stevens Hall on the university campus and get permission to... Right, that's that's exactly right. For many years, you had to come in, you could call, Mm -hmm. or you could come in and listen to things there. The downside of that, of course, is there are many, many people out there who don't know that we exist. So uh, now we're getting many emails. We still get calls. People still come in. But um, daily, we have inquiries now, whereas in the past, it might have been weekly. Uh, So there's a, a lot more use of the material. And we get all kinds of uh, people who I think Katie has some examples that she's brought with her about the way people use the collection. I know uh, one of the most common things is that people will find uh, an interview with a grandparent uh, and they want a copy of it or they want to provide it to, you know, for their children or whatever. So, Mm. Katie, you have some things? Sure, yeah. Um, I have just selected a number of examples from the last few months of uh, people that came in. Someone is writing a history book on beer in Maine. And so they came in to check out uh, what was beer making in Maine during the Prohibition like. Um, someone else is putting on an exhibit at the Princeton Library for the Maine Memory Network. And so they want to look into the Princeton area and logging, early logging in that area. Um, someone was looking um, for uh, new folk songs. They wanted to add folk songs. It's a, it was a mother and daughter that came in, but they're part of a family folk group, and they wanted main songs. So um, there was, I think this is a really cool one. The uh, um, the Greater Grand Isle Historical Society um, is looking to recreate the ferry and reenact the crossing from uh, between Grand Isle, Maine, and uh, Green River, New Brunswick. So um, they want information on that. So. Uh, there are lots of different things. Someone even wanted to know about uh, blueberry growers in Maine because they're going to make recommendations about uh, uh, pollination security and improving habitat for native wild bees and stuff like that. Uh, so just a huge range of people. And then, of course, yes, uh, my granddaughter is doing an, a research project in elementary school or um, I just looked and searched my grandfather's name and, you know, lots of stuff like that. And I have a colleague who's who's um, working on, on kind of modern products from the forest, and he's looking at you guys to help him with spruce gum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so almost anything you can imagine from the past, somebody's told a story about it, has a picture about it, um, maybe has a video of it or f- a film of it. We have – it is a remarkable collection uh, and covers such a br- – the entire state, including and also maritime provinces and other uh, New England states, but primarily Maine, and <clears throat> so many different uh, areas of um, occupation, such as you know fishing and boat building, and I can't remember, and um, <laughs> uh, logging and lumbering and farming, lots and lots of farming. We've done uh, some projects with Mafka uh, where we've interviewed founders of Mafka, founders of the fair, you know, so there's just a, a tremendous resource for folks doing all kinds of research. 
Well, you, you're, you're, as you talk about um, these partnerships with MOFCA, you also have a, a partnership with the American Folk Festival. Uh, why don't you introduce that, and, and then we'll uh, bring Heather McCarthy into the conversation. Sure. Um, well, back in 2001, I believe, uh, the city of Bangor was looking to bring the National Folk Festival to Bangor. And <clears throat> Sandy Ives and I were invited to come to some committee meetings to discuss it. And that's how it began. Um, and I really didn't know anything about the National Folk Festival when I started. Um, and, I, I, you know, I sort of knew about what folk festivals were like and so on. But it was a it was a huge task. And I the first time we went out to East Lansing to see the National where it was at the time and I was just amazed and I thought can we do that here you know (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to believe but it was really kind of a a daunting thing so that's how it started and I've been involved ever since Um, I was asked to oversee the material culture areas of the festival which included the craft area and the 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 area we call the main folk life area which really focuses on Maine and so I've been doing that ever Great. since. Well, let's bring Heather McCarthy, who's the director of the American Folk Festival, onto our into our conversation. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about um, your your um, involvement and and how the American Folk Festival came to be after 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 a fashion. Well, just as I think the Maine Folklife Center is is looking at those cultural traditions that are part of Maine's heritage. The American Folk Festival is doing some of the same things for the performing arts from the traditions that are part of America today. And in reality, that means the traditions that are part of our world today. So we present a huge diversity of uh, performing arts and material culture on our stages, everything from things that you think of as classically American traditions like um, you know, Southern gospel music or Native American song and dance and Hawaiian hula and other things that come to us from uh, from other countries. We have, we've had great Congolese performers and Malian performers and there's some wonderful Canadian traditions. And we're, we're, we're doing that to help uh, not only bring community and economic stimulus to Bangor, but also because these arts are incredibly important to our understanding of, uh, of our culture today. And here in Maine, these performers don't typically come touring through. Mm. So if, if we're going to have our community be uh, exposed to some of these wonderful traditions, uh, we've got to bring them here uh, for a purpose, and that's what the American Folk Festival is doing. And what should we look forward to in 2013? What are some of the things that um, will be um, special or new, perhaps? Well, we always have new artists. That's one of the hallmarks of the event is that uh, we're always bringing in new traditions and new uh, new artists because we don't want people to say, oh, yeah, I saw it last year. I don't need to go this year. Uh, so um, I think we're going to be able to present perhaps uh, music from Nepal, uh, music from Mali, and some of the other musical traditions that people, people count on the festival for, like bluegrass and Celtic and Quebecois. Mm. And uh, say a little bit more about how you see the partnership with um, the Maine Folk Life Center and Paulina's role. Well, I, I think it's crucially important that when we're bringing all of these people together on the Bangor waterfront to experience diverse traditional arts, that they get an understanding of some of that rich history that we have right here in Maine. And the Folk Life Center at the University of Maine is the center of, uh, you know, really understanding in depth what those traditions are who those people are, who the the, the tradition bearers and, and folks ensuring that some of these cultural treasures continue. Mm. Um, so it just makes sense that uh, if we can partner with the Maine Folklife Center to help showcase those things that are really unique to Maine and that resonate with our audience, uh, that's that's just a wonderful partnership for us to have. Great. And um, one of the things I know that you um, value is um, good volunteers oh, <laughs> for yeah. your effort. So tell folks if they're interested in, in taking part and in, in participating as a volunteer, how would they get in touch with you? Um, you can go to our either our website or our Facebook page, uh, and it's American Folk Festival uh, both times. Uh, we are just now getting ready to make those registration forms live. Uh, we're just under six months to go until this year's festival, and uh, we're starting the recruiting process. We've got a, uh, a pretty big hill to climb, looking for about 800 volunteers, 
and um, you know we we do offer some some benefits to folks that are willing to help us out, including uh, an exclusive festival T-shirt and invitation to the to the invitation only uh, volunteer and artist party during festival weekend. Uh, and in addition to that, it's we we've heard from our volunteers that it's just such a great experience to be part of what makes the festival happen. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on Talk of the Towns, Heather. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Great. Thanks, Heather. Heather McCarthy of the American Folk Festival. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, we'll uh, open up our phone lines if you've got questions or comments or perhaps some, some stories to tell on your own. Uh, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. Maybe we could hear another story um, or a song. The Gorby story? Sure. <clears throat> this uh, story is called The Man Who Plucked the Gorby was also collected by Sandy Ives um, in 1958. Mm. And it uh, was re- uh, collected from Charles Silby somewhere north of Moosehead Lake. Lake, excuse me. The Gorby is a, is a name for a Canada jay, uh, which is a big gray bird, if you're not familiar with it. It uh, lives in the northern woods. And if you're, if you're not careful, he'll come down and steal your lunch. Yes, and they have a reputation for having quite an appetite. Uh, so... I'll see if I can get our engineer ready for the Gorby story. Great, let's go with that. Did you, uh, you were telling me the other day, while I got the thing on, you were telling me the other day about Archie Stackhouse. Yeah. Now, where did you know him? Oh, he used to be one good man up the woods there. He'd watch camps, just tote team, and you'd stay up there the year round. Well, this is the story they told. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. The only thing I know about it. He didn't have a spare of hair on his head when you get the palm of your hand. Not a bit. And they said he took one of these gobbies, these meat birds, you know what them are. Well, he took one of them and he picked him all over his wings in February. Picked him all, feathers all off him, all over his wings. He says, go, you son of a bitch, and get your new coat. And said so the next morning, when he woke up, his hair laid right on the pillow and began to dance with it. Now, any truth in that, I don't know. But I do know he didn't have an hand. Mm. Well, did he ever say anything about it himself? No. What sort of a person was he? He wasn't a bad old fellow. He was a big man, but he was all right. Mm-hmm. Nice fellow to talk with and everything, but nothing made end up with anything about it. And I never heard anybody mention it to him. <laughs> One of the interesting things about the Gorby is that the, the <clears throat> it had a kind of a deeper significance as having a certain magical... Uh, uh, powers and uh, and sometimes uh, people, some of the woodsmen believed that the gorbies uh, had the souls of the dead woodsmen in them. So if you if you mistreated a gorby, you were mistreating a fellow woodsman. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's kind of the basis of this story of mm-hmm. him losing his hair after he plucked the gorby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll list our phone numbers one more time. Perhaps we've got some listeners who would like to learn more about um, the gorby or some of the other collections um, in the main Folk Life Center. Give us a call, one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. Um, this um, notion of, of uh, um, you know, collecting and archiving. Um, are there some particular challenges that you're facing? As you, the size of the job is 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 massive. How do you approaching that? How do you organize yourself to do that, Katrina? Well, there are sort of two levels that I'm working on. I'm working on the digitization project and the issues with that, and then the issues with the archives because. Uh, Right now, we don't have a lot of manpower, um, so we're a little bit backlogged. So I just finished putting, um, editing the abstracts and the transcripts for um, something that was done in 2005 uh, about country music um, in New England, which is very interesting to read. I recommend people check that out. Um, But so just mostly catching up and keeping everything organized and making sure it's all standardized, that's that half. For the digitization, it's a little bit different um, than you would have with analog materials. You could take a book, uh, catalog it, and put it on the shelf and leave it in theory. Well, it might get a little mildewy, and as long as there's not a flood or something, it should be fine. You can't do that with digital materials. Um, there's things like bit rot, and you might just no longer have the technology to access it. So if you put it on a shelf, it's lost. So you have to um, think about um, migration and maintenance and a policy for that so that 
even if I'm not here for some reason, that someone else will know to do that. Um, and like how to store it. Do you store it on a server, on hard drives, on CDs, on DVDs? There's just so many different things that um, I'm looking at. And uh, I don't know if anyone out there has ever heard of metadata, but metadata is data about data uh, <laughs> that you need to collect for each of these to be uh, sort of fully prepared for the future. So you have to have descriptive, structural, and administrative metadata for every single accession. Um, and that includes things like the name, what's it about, but also how was it scanned? How was it digitized? Who did it? What dates? Um, and what order should things be in? So it's uh, pretty complex, and I'm working on um, making it a little bit less complex and uh, easier for people to manage. Mm. And how did the Library of Congress get interested or involved? Uh, Paulina, how, what's that partnership like? Well, um, the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress um, is it's a kind of a, a close friend of ours. Uh, there aren't a lot of folklife centers in the country. So um, we have uh, a, an advisory board at the Folklife Center that includes uh, members of the American Folklife Center, David Taylor in particular, who's also an alum of the University of Maine. And a few years ago, we went through a bit of a crisis with the, with the recession and budget cuts and so on. We lost uh, some of our staff. And they, so David and other members of the board were trying to think of ways that they could help us um, and so they put their heads together and came up with the idea of purchasing our original collection in exchange for digitizing. I had been searching around for funds to do this because I could see that without digitizing, we were going to have a really tough time moving forward in the 21st century. So uh, they asked me to put together a proposal for what it would cost to digitize the collection. And I presented that to them. They brought that to the uh, Congressional uh, Library of Congress librarian, the chief librarian, and uh, they approved it. So uh, they provided us with those funds. And so what that means is we have an agreement with them that we will digitize the entire collection. We will send the originals to the Library of Congress who will then store them mm. in a safe place. Now, we have always had a... Uh, uh, we've always made copies of everything that came into the Folklife Center. So we've always had copies, and we always use copies when people come in to look at things and so on. So the originals have always been stored in a separate building uh, with climate control across campus. And so those are the ones that are going to the Library of Congress. Meanwhile, the copies will remain, and we'll also have the digital copies. So uh, are we still retain the same rights to the material that we always have. The Library of Congress doesn't retake copyright of things. They consider what belongs there to belong to the people of the country. Mm. So it works out very well to have that kind of an agreement with mm. them. So let's talk a little bit about um, what's happening now in terms of collecting and, or, and adding to that collection. Sure. Who's doing that? Um, is that students on campus, professors on campus? And if someone who's listening to this show wants to say, oh, I've got a wonderful story that my grandfather used to tell, how would they mm – -hmm. <laughs> how do you make a judgment I as to what to I get a lot of calls. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a larger staff. Yeah. Um, the collection grows through the work of faculty, staff, students, people from other universities, other organizations. Uh, whenever there's an oral history project in the state, almost always uh, that's uh, funded by, say, the Maine Humanities Council, they'll suggest the Folklife Center as an archives. Um, so we are, we are always getting new materials in. Um, I've had a number of, of projects that I've worked on over the years. Um, the Folk Festival is another source of material. For example, if we're doing a project uh, on a particular theme, I will interview people who are going to, some of the folk artists who are going to be there. That becomes part of our collection. We, we also record the narrative stage at the Folk Festival. That becomes part of our collection. And we often do oral histories at the festival as well. Uh, we have classes, and some of the students do uh, research. And there are various historical organizations around the state and cultural organizations who do oral history projects. And we often 
archive their materials and so on. So it's it's constantly growing. Mm. So um, I could imagine listeners saying, "Well, I'm not going to worry too much about getting to the the, um, the uh, main folk life center, but I do want to do oral histories for my family." Um, again, you mentioned Sandy Ives' um, material. What would you suggest to that person in terms of how they might get started with their own oral histories? Uh, it is a good idea to get training. Uh, and there are different people who can do that. I certainly do it, and I actually teach a cor- course in interviewing at the university. There's one this summer, and uh, it's an online course. So if you're not uh, able to come to campus, you can do it that way. But there are other people as well. I know the Maine Humanities Council offers uh, some training, and uh, I think it's a good idea. Uh, sometimes people will just come and talk to me and ask me questions and so on, and that's fine. I'm happy to help anybody who has a project like that. Mm. And is, is Sandy's materials on how to do that, is that online so people can find that? It no. is not. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's a project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember um, talking with um, some wonderful folks on Swans Island who were part of the main memory project, and um, they were doing some wonderful um, kind of oral histories. And so, again, that notion of getting a little training so you're not making mistakes that you know you would regret later on. Right, probably. exactly. That's the, the main yeah. thing. Yeah. And, we're, and we, you know, we do like to archive anything that's from the state because mm-hmm. um, we are really the repository for the state. Uh, we often do work with the Maine State Archives and other organizations like that as well. So, mm. Well, I think you've brought um, a couple of other pieces. Let's um, go to the next one, something to, with John Roberts. Tell us a little bit well, about I that. Well, I thought you, your listeners might like to hear something from this area. And this is a, uh, a song that tells the sad tale of a river driver who died on the job, uh, in this case, on the Union River. Mm. Uh, it's... Um, there are more popular songs about this sort of genre people have heard, like Peter Emberley and others. But um, this one is native to Maine, definitely. And um, most of the sad ballads of people dying on the river are believed to be true. And well, uh, many of them are. There's certainly a very dangerous occupation. Right. Well, I'll list our phone numbers one more time so people can get ready to make a phone call. one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. As we talk with Paulina McDougall, director of the Maine Folklife Center, and Katrina Wynn, who's the archives manager, and now we're going to hear a story of dark death on the Union River. <laughs> Come, all ye fellow men from far and near, a melancholy tale to hear. One of our fellow mortals, he has gone to his long eternity. John Roberts says we understand it was the name of this young man whose fate we hope will a warning prove to all who do these lines pursue. He hired out with Mr. Brown To help him drive his lumber down On the west branch where he did go Which quickly proved his overthrow T'was of a lowry sky this young man left his home to die when from his home he did depart a gleam of hope twined round his heart he ventured out to break a jam which had begun on the rolling dam But when he started for the shore, he sank, alas, to rise no more. We think he got his fatal blow while struggling in the undertow by some huge rock beneath the waves where soon he found him a watery grave. 
We search the stream from shore to shore. Here's lifeless body to secure. Trusting in God to guide the way unto his tentament of clay. Twas on the third day at three o'clock when Mr. Philsburg took his boat and with a grapple in his hand he raised him from his bed of sand. Our message then was sent away these mournful tidings to convey unto his tender parents dear to tell them that they'd see their son no more. And in due time a bio was made and on it was his body laid Born to the grave where he shall lie Till Gabriel's triumphs shall rend the sky We fellow men, we too must die And go to our long eternity So let us live while here below Love God in all his past pursuit, and let us live in Christian love, and go with him to reign above. Story, the story of John Roberts, um, and that was that was uh, collected by Fanny Hardy Ekstrom, who was another. Um, she was part, kind of the pioneer in all this, wasn't yes, she? Yes, she really was. Uh, she did a lot of collecting in Maine back in the 30s. Well, let's. Um, we've got a phone call. I'll list our phone numbers one more time, 1-866-625-9378. Let's go ahead with our caller. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Um, hello, I'm Maisie Newell. I'm calling from uh, Montville, Maine. And um, I was just uh, calling to make an update on something that we um, dropped off the flyer about a community event happening over at the Montville Grange, um, an old-time dance, and we've been carrying on the tradition from learning some of the old Down East tunes and found that dancing was a great way to get together all times of the year for the farmers and everyone else. And um, recently, we just got news that our Grange Hall got shut down by the fire marshal, who deemed it unsafe. And so we're going to have our dance anyway, but anyone that's planning on coming, meet meet at the Grange Hall and we'll direct you about a mile down the road. We've got a great barn that's um, awesome for dancing in. And there there has been some controversy over this um, this shutdown of the Grange. We've been trying to keep um, we've been allotting about a, over a grand every year to keep the buildings up and so the town's a little bit upset. Many folks are. There's been also controversy about um, the public use of many of the buildings in Montville, the townhouse and the Grange in general. So, well, um, yep. Well, anyway, the dance, the dance, aside from that, the dance is uh, going to carry on either way. And um, just called in to let everybody know. Well, thanks so much for your call. You want to list any contact information? Um, yep, you can call um, 380-3095 if you need any more information about the dance. And, right. um, we're going to have some a great band, and we're going to have um, John McIntyre calling, and a great four-piece string band, and it'll be a good time anyway. Well, great. Thanks so much for your call. one 625 9378 if you'd like to contribute. Well, um, both Granges and, and uh, um, kind of folk um, concerts, and those are ways to keep these things alive. Absolutely. Uh, it's great to you know, know that uh, contra dancing is alive and well around the state. We we do have quite a bit of material at the Folk Life Center, uh, both from the Down East Friends of the Folk Arts and from uh, people who've done work with contra dancing and other traditional dances as well. Um, 
But yeah, and there's uh, also lots of wonderful musicians in the state who play for dances and who uh, are continuing the old time music that there's has always a, been played. There's a town in New Hampshire, and I think they've been going 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, every <laughs> I don't know whether it's a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night, but you know, Saturday night, whatever. Yeah, they, they have had a traditional dance every night or every yeah, every week. It's great. I just wanted to mention that last uh, song that we listened to is a ballad. Oh, sure. And um, we, I mentioned early on that uh, when we started the Folklife Center, Sandy started the Northeast Folklore Society to begin the journal, which is now we have 44 volumes of Northeast Folklore. And the most recent one was British Ballads for Maine, which is a collection of ballads that were collected by Fanny Ekstrom. You mentioned her as well. So I wanted to make those connections. And also to let people know that we're going to be having um, three ballads workshops in the state in April. And we're going to talk more about that uh, on another program, but I just wanted to mention the dates. They're going to be April 2nd in Belfast at the Free Library, uh, April 9th at Orono at Fogler Library, and the 16th in Portland. So how would you define a ballad? Oh, you would ask me that. (laughs) It's basically a song that tells a story. And there are many different kinds of ballads. Some are sad, like the one you just heard. Um, but they always tell a story about an event. Um, very often they have, uh, they hire back to ancient beliefs and uh, they're, you know, particularly the British ballads uh, and other ballads from other European countries. So that tradition of, of um, telling stories and being able to pass them on. We, we don't necessarily remember all the details if we're just kind of pl- plucking out of our head. Right. But if we are singing a song with those details in it, we're able to, to remember them and pass them on. Yeah, and the thing about ballads, people love ballads so much and they pass them on uh, from country to country and make little changes that, you know, reflect local culture. Mm. So, for example, if somebody might be singing about a white swan in... England, they'll be singing about a white fawn in Maine. Mm. Uh, those are the kinds of things that right. that happen. And before we close, I wanted to, um, because we started with um, Sandy Ives' contribution, I know you're trying to honor um, his memory um, with some activities and, and an endowment. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, I... Um, how much time do we have? Time? A little. I just want to talk a little bit about what we're, our plans are for okay. the future. Yep. Uh, we just recently finished our strategic plan, mm. and we're looking at uh, building folklore at the university more and throughout the state, and supporting folk arts and folklore uh, everywhere. So, um, we're trying to work. Uh, we're working on maybe developing a folklore minor at the university, a graduate certificate in folklore. Um, we want to engage more with communities and do more community projects. Um, we're looking for new folk artists too. So if you know somebody who's you know doing something wonderful, and you uh, let me know, give me a so call. So when you say folk artist, you're not just talking about music. You're talking about music, all of the crafts, arts. Yeah. dance, all of that sort of okay. thing. Yeah, as long as it's traditional, it fits in with our um, you know with our mission, um, and. So we do need resources, and um, you know we we get a, a dribble and a drab here and there from <laughs> our services to the you know to digitizing things for people or selling our, our journal. But we also have an endowment called the Sandy Ives Fund, and that's through the U- University of Maine Foundation. So if anyone is interested in supporting us in that way, they can either contact me or the University of Maine Foundation to make a, a, a contribution to that. You can also help us by becoming a member. Uh, membership is $25, and it gets you a copy of our journal and our newsletter, which goes out a couple times a year and keeps the breast of things and um, you know, helps support the work. Mm. So this notion that um, you are, are kind of a resource for um, kind of professionals and amateurs um, all towards the purpose of making sure we don't forget any of this stuff. Right. And, and Katrina, that digitization process, um, everyone's going to have to do that eventually if we want to preserve yep, these things. For sure. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, we're also looking for volunteers if mm. anyone would like to help us, especially people who uh, can transcribe or um, actually help me with the digitization process. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yes, we are one of the first in the state to really go through this process. So it's good that we can sort of work out the bugs for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bugs to work out, I'm there sure. Are. Yeah. And we are, you know, we are available to help folks who have cassettes or reel-to-reel tapes they want to have 
transferred to digital formats. Mm. Yep. Mm. So if if you could um, look back over the last year and and uh, maybe tell two stories between the two of you of of things that have come to your attention um, through this process of kind of um, either professional folks, students, professors, or families, or, or you know historical societies, can you think of any more examples? Or am I putting you on the spot? Um, you mean using the archives? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we have uh, one student who's coming in. He's writing his uh, master's thesis, and so I see him on a regular basis. And it's very interesting. He's writing about masculinity in logging um, mm-hmm. and in the Northwoods. So I'm really excited to read his uh, thesis. And um, uh, we're going to actually talk about him a little bit more in our newsletter. So if you get that, you can uh, learn more about Ian. But just seeing him uh, come in and using Sandy's work so often is just its really heartwarming. Mm-hmm. I, I just saw on um, one of my friends on, on Facebook um, um, shared a video of 1930s logging up in, in on the Allagash River. And I have been there for 30 years and imagining all of this because I can see the relics. I can see, you know, the landscape. I can see how forestry has influenced. I can see the, the Lombard log haulers, the, the, mm-hmm. the shells of those. Well, this film from 1933... Um, it all brought it alive. And yeah. I could see the horses, yeah. and I could see the loggers, and that's what you're doing, it yeah. seems like. You're bringing alive something that may just be a distant kind of thread of a memory. Yeah. Yeah, we are, I mean, this, I think one of the things that um, is is important is that although we're con- we're collecting contemporary stuff, we've been around long enough so that we're covering the entire 20th century now. Um because when Sandy was interviewing in the 50s, he was talking to people who were born at the turn of the century and, and could remember that mm-hmm. first half of the 20th century. So we've got entire 20th century history of Maine in, within our walls, and now we're working on the 21st. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And just so many different topics. So it really is a fabulous research and needs to be preserved, and, and it is the only place in Maine where you can find this material. Mm. So, mm. And the, the um, I'll probably get the, the title wrong, but the, the journal that you produce. Northeast uh, Folklore. Northeast Folklore. Um, the, the most recent is, is about... British you, Ballads from Maine. Okay. Yes. Think of any other titles that our listeners might be listening or or topics that are, are there. I can remember one of collecting stories on Mount Desert Island. Mm-hmm. And I um, can't remember the guy's name, but um, he, was a, he was a student of Sandy's. Yeah. And he came, uh, kind of came and he knew from his own background, there were still tor- storytellers around. And right. so he well, went around and collected those. Our website does have an entire list of all of the journals. And like I said, there are 44. Our next issue is going to be uh, compiled from our song and story sampler. So it will have songs and stories from all over the state in, um, you know, basically four different directions, you know, western Maine, central Maine, down east Maine, northern Maine, and so on. And all of the context material and photographs that will go with that. So that will be coming out this coming year. Mm. And you mentioned the samplers. We've used those here on the on the air. Um, tell us a little bit about those samplers. Well, the sampler was uh, a project that we were supported by the National Endowment for the Arts. And we decided we wanted people in the state to be able to access the material easily. And, of course, it isn't all digitized yet. So we had to find things that were, A, digitized, and, B, would represent good sound quality and and represent the culture of the area and so um we basically just went through and found little excerpts that we could put in there and we tried to balance songs and stories and uh, other things ethnicity we have um for example a a finnish song uh from monson and so we tried to you know make sure that we were covering all of the different folks from maine the different geographical areas, gender balance, and all of that. So mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, we're constantly adding to it as well. Mm, great. Well, I think we're about out of time. Um, maybe you could just list our, your contact information. Sure. Uh, you can reach me at 581 1848. 581 or online umain.edu backslash folklife. Great. Well, I look forward to all the good things that you're doing um, and encourage our listeners um, to be in touch when Thanks they've again. got something. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. For having us. That's really great. enjoyed this. That's great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from 
a cooperative extension and the Hancock County Extension Association with offices in each county. Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Town. So later on this month, we'll be talking with Aaron Doherty of the uh, Penobscot East Resource Center about some fisheries um, issues. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning, Paulina McDougall, Director of the Maine Folklife Center, Katrina Wynn, who is the Archives Manager for Maine Folklife Center, and Heather McCarthy joined us by phone. She's the Director of the American Folk Festival in Bangor. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Um, thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. Support your community radio station.